to the Burnout Podcast, where we discuss all things agile software development and delivery. We will be giving you an honest take on tools and techniques. We'll share our experiences, debunk myths, and hopefully provide needed inspiration. Hi, I'm Todd Anderson, Consultant Delivery Manager. I've done just about every job in IT, from tech support, programmer, network security, project and program management. I can't say I've done everything, but I've seen a lot. And I'm Marcel Bridge, digital consultant, business analyst and product owner. I've worked in digital before this even had a name, and since have been quite a bit around the block. And this is my way of giving back to the industry. So sit back, relax, and settle in for this week's episode. This week we're talking about UX design and service design with Tarek and Isabel. Hey guys, want to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Isabel and I've been working as a visual designer for almost 20 years now and I've worked on pretty much anything digital from large global responsive websites to high impact campaign sites to mobile apps. And I also work as a design consultant and I establish and improve processes and optimize workflows between teams. Hi, I'm Tara Johnson. I'm a UX designer. I've been in the industry for about 15 years. I worked in a multitude of different sectors, uh, recently governments and also in the finance sector. So let's jump into the episode. Cool. So Tarek, maybe let's start with you uh, as a user experience designer. Tell us what your role is about. So kind of a UX role is primarily looking to put the, the user at the center of a product. That, that's our kind of primary goal, be the advocate for the user. Before UX kind of really came along, a lot of products would be kind of led by the product owners or the business. So the user pretty much wouldn't be there, wouldn't really be involved in the process. And you'd end up delivering a product to the market. And um, often at that point, you get feedback. And then retrospectively, you'd have to go and fix stuff, which is a very, very expensive thing to do. And like a lot of industries, you have obviously a lot of different sectors in engineering. They, they obviously build prototypes of bridges before they, they build a bridge because it's much more cost effective. So in terms of when I got into UX, it was primarily like uh, as an advert for the user, to look at user needs and uh, also understand business needs. But primarily the biggest thing was to actually bring the user to the center of the product. That can start with just actually interviewing the user, bringing them in, understanding their needs, their requirements, what they actually do, but also aligning that to the kind of the business goal and the business strategy as well to understand obviously the product you're trying to build and align that to the users that they're trying to target to obviously sell a product or convert or whatever you're trying to do. Really, you, you kind of take that, and, and the role is to work with the business to understand those requirements and those needs and, and to align those with the users who've actually got a viable product. I think one, one interesting word you've just dropped there is user-centric mm-hmm. design thinking. I think that's what kind of, I guess, if you want a buzzword, encapsulate that role. User so, yeah. yeah, I guess, how would you explain <laughs> what, what you do day to day? Um, so basically my job is to make the customer facing part of an application, be that a website or a mobile app or a digital product or a campaign, look good. So I essentially do the pretty pictures um, to put it in nice words. This means um, make it look good in the sense that it's clear, it's intuitive 
and it's easy to use. And so I create the visual concept and I develop the design language that defines a brand visually and provides a clear and intuitive structure and makes it easier for the customer to understand what they need to do and guide the eye through the page and highlight points of interaction. So just a question then, which I find always interesting is on the project we work on at the moment, there is a small part that's consumer facing and then there is a very big part which is internal operations facing like your configurations and your settings etc etc quite often organizations think well we need the, the roles UX and visual design for the consumer facing part to make it pretty to make it appealing to make it usable but kind of you know the internal facing stuff that's for the internal staff operations teams we don't need those roles they're expensive a is that right and b how do we convince the clients that maybe there is some benefit or it is very important to involve those roles on internal facing software as well rather than just on the shiny marketing bits i mean those are people too at the sort of back end of the whole sort of application and they should not be in any way treated differently than people who look at a sort of customer facing open front part so they have the same needs for clarity for um, user friendliness they have the same needs to be guided through what they're doing and if that's not in place then it just takes them longer and makes it a lot more complicated and a lot more awkward for them to um, work with that back-end part of the system. And very basically, I mean, they might just not like the application, which I think is a factor that's sometimes underestimated. I think if you hate using a tool because you don't like how it looks or looks crappy, then you won't be using it. There's often the, the case of when you're designing in, in intranets or internal systems, is the, the kind of the idea is, oh, well, they'll be trained to use it. <laughs> so it's almost an excuse for a kind of a, a lesser experience. Um, but from projects I've learned um, where it's all about efficiency and kind of taking calls and resolving calls as much as possible, it's key to understand their needs as well, to make them as efficient as possible because mm. no one wants to be stuck on a call longer than they have to be and no one wants to take longer than they need to to serve the customer's needs. So it's becoming more important as a, also as a cost reduction as well in terms of people's time. So I think it's starting to get better but it often is... Yeah neglected because it's the, it's the less sexy, it's the less exciting product. Obviously certain intranets, like kind of like your, your HR portal, stuff like that, get neglected, but I think when it's kind of customer facing, I think it definitely is getting better. Yeah. Experience I've worked with. But Todd and I have a kind of an in-joke, remember our hotel in Dubai, where whenever we, we check out, <laughs> yeah. there's this process we don't understand where people are frantically typing for like 10 minutes to check you out. And we're like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why, yeah, why is that? I don't, I don't yeah, know. What are they doing? Who designed that experience for them? And they clearly are not efficient. We hate it because it's five in the morning and you want to check out quickly. So something was missing there in this. In you're the you're yeah. an apology from the person saying, well, sorry, my system's really slow. <laughs> oh, it's this, you hear them on the phone actually complaining to the customer. So it actually gets to the customer that they're working with a very bad system. I think this might be a good point to actually talk about some of the difference and overlaps between these roles because you know obviously we have a designer in UX mm -hmm. but we, we also mentioned service design here like what is the difference between those roles and those roles overlap sometimes a single person does more than one of those roles like how, how do you guys see that overlapping? Uh, there is definitely a large overlap and I would say that visual design and user experience design 
uh, inform each other and one can influence the other and that can go both ways and I think this really shows that it's very important that there is collaboration from the beginning and that there is a, a close-knit team particularly around those two roles and, and also where the adjacent roles like for example front-end development where you want to get the developers involved really pretty early on to make sure that everyone is on the same page that you're designing something both from a UX perspective and from a visual perspective that can actually be done and that you're also you know on the same page when it comes to pushing boundaries which is also important and uh, remain innovative to uh, become more and more user-friendly and create slicker and easier to use interfaces as you go along. Often I see kind of customer experience sometimes coming in, maybe in the inception phase, maybe before projects even going to be delivered, to identify to a business where there's opportunities, potentially, so they can go in and look at the offline and look at the online. Mm. So it's not necessarily right. the product, it's the, uh, I guess it's the, the brand or... The value proposition. Yeah, exactly. There'll be something there where they can see we're not doing great, we're not attracting large numbers, we've got a good brand maybe, but what can we do? Where are the areas which are lagging? Often they come in and they can produce kind of really great kind of customer maps, experience maps, really bring the user to them and really show where there are opportunities. I think when there's obviously that's been identified and they have a clear idea of potential features and products they can start building potentially which will kind of obviously kind of improve revenue whatever they're trying to to target I think that's probably when you get more of an ex- user experience designer in like working on a product based off maybe the kind of customer experience but there is an overlap of the two but UX they can do both you can have a customer experience service designer who can do UX mm-hmm. and, and vice versa but um, sometimes people want to be more specialized yeah do, do you think do you think it being a designer is more of a creative role where you have to be good at you have to be good at making the pictures you know I know developers aren't usually good at that and they're, they're usually the ones that get the first swing at it and it usually ends up in some monstrosity right but <laughs> but like you know I, I don't know Tara do you have visual design experience as well in your background yeah or? I've done visual design in the past but you definitely specialize in certain areas I think and you, you definitely focus in areas where you probably have, have more strength and, and uh in terms of the visual design I've done, it's pretty much it's quite, it's quite a simple design. I've kind of worked in government a lot where we don't have. So I've worked in environments where you have visual designers and you work quite closely with them. And you have worked in environments where you just don't have any visual designers and it's all based off this kind of template model. Mm-hmm. So, for example, gov.uk, you pretty much work as a designer doing the designs yourself. Very strong style guidelines that mm-hmm. you exactly. execute but against. Yeah. The time you go to a job where actually visual design actually is a requirement, that's when you need people like kind of Isabel to come in who have that specialism. You can actually go mm-hmm. in there and understand colours, fonts, you know, weighting, all that kind of stuff. That I have a rough idea, but I can't call myself an expert. And I think if I was to produce the visual design, you would see the difference. Uh, I mean, I think it's always essential to have a really good understanding of what the people you work closest with do. And then obviously you need to be a complete expert in your own field. And for the visual design, um, uh, you need creativity, definitely. You need some visual flair, but you need to also pair that with a deep understanding of usability and interaction design so you're just not doing sort of shiny pictures for shiny pictures sake. You need a really good eye for detail and for typography for the purpose of then creating an experience that is um, easily structured and consistent enough and modular enough 
so that you can piece these things together and they just work when you put them together. And that applies particularly to large corporate sites um, uh, you know, or, or software, so sort of larger products where that becomes particularly important rather than, let's say, for a campaign site where it's maybe more uh, important to just be a bit more visually flamboyant to support the brand. And this is another thing as well. I mean, the visual design has to really portray the brand and uh, carry that across so that for the end user, there is a seamless journey from all the different diversity of the output of the brand to whoever is interacting with them so that it becomes one family and it's easily recognized and it sort of all goes together, it fits together. Well, what's your, what's your take on, you know, sometimes you guys do such a good job and you do it so early on that so, so sometimes clients or, or people seeing sort of a prototype or something, they think there's, it's a finished product when actually you still need to program the whole back end to it. Have you, have you guys found that, that, you know, you're working on something, you you show a prototype to them, they think it's a, this nice shiny thing yeah. where, where, you know, and they think it's a done deal and it's already developed, you know, yeah. in the prototype phase, have you guys run into that and how, how did you deal with that? Um, I, I find it more in kind of gut because the way you prototype there, you use pretty much the same code base as the actual real product. It looks identical. So you have to be very careful when you show this to stakeholders and developers and um, what the art that possible actually is and what you prototype is. So the difference between what's actually feasible to develop and actually is feasible from a technology point of view to the actual user needs in terms of what the users actually want. So you have to caveat it quite a lot. And there has been a couple of times people have thought, well, this is what we're going to get. Mm-hmm. And then the hard truth comes in once development starts and once obviously stories get estimated and the complexity comes in often that's not what's delivered, especially for the, the first launch in a way. So often it's a good kind of prototype, but it, it, that's what it is at the time. It's not the finished product. So you have to be a little bit careful. Often with that format, it's fine, but you have other ones obviously where you use kind of lower fidelity tools like Axure and uh, maybe paper prototypes. And obviously sometimes there is a win for going low fidel sometimes because people do get caught on the detail a little bit. So depending on who your client is and what you want to do, you, you find the most appropriate tools, but often you have to work quite closely with a wider team, so these are better than, you're not, I guess, mis-selling is the wrong word, but kind of overselling what we're potentially going to do, so you have to be careful about that. And I think it just comes back to, again, collaboration and communication. So don't overpromise. you know, mm-hmm. give the uh, client something right from the beginning that you can actually deliver. So talk to the developers, talk mm-hmm. to the people who are going to do the back end. Is this feasible? Can we actually do this? Um, because once you sell in something to the client that they really like and then they mm-hmm. notice that they can't have it, it's, it's just not going to... But on that note, I really want to understand from a design perspective, I've worked on a number of projects with more the creative agencies where designers basically go totally off on one and design the shit out of something and then you have to paddle back because the client can't just afford that. Not even talking technicalities, which you're right as well, but designers sometimes have a bit of a bad rep that they, they're like you know artists and they, they can't stick to business realities. They have no idea about timelines, about budget, etc., um, is about how do you, if you have juniors you work with, how do you get them to understand that not the, the most crazy, perfectly designed thing is always right for every client? Mm. 
How, how do you find the balance? Well, I think first of all, I would say don't stop exploring possibilities. So keep researching trends and stay with that. But then equally, don't let your creative bravado and urge for uniqueness get in the way of what the client actually needs. Stick close to the brief and keep that in mind always. Don't work in a silo. Uh, work with other people. Mm-hmm. Work in yeah. collaboration. And also, uh, somewhat related, don't take things personally. I think as a designer, maybe, mm-hmm. I don't know, but maybe more than in other um, mm-hmm. jobs, you have a tendency to just take things very personally if something is disliked or critiqued in any way. And you're, mm-hmm. you, you have a tendency sort of to maybe push back more than... Uh, in other professions. I don't know. I mean, so surely everyone... It's your artwork, that. it's your baby. Yeah, it's, exactly. yeah, it's your vision it's, realized. Yeah. It yeah. just yeah. comes from your... To, to be fair, I think that's just human, right? Every developer hates their code being reviewed and criticized. I get... Go, go, go fucking mental if someone criticizes the stories I write. Yeah. I'm not sure talk about you when you do project management. No, Can well. we reformat that? But I think this is actually something important to learn pretty early on in your career as a designer. You know, do the best you can, but take on board what other people think too. Uh, I think collaboration is a, a big thing that I found. What I found when uh, teams are often kind of split, like the visual design team or the, um, the UX team, or there seems to be kind of little tribal things going on there. And also as well, if the client isn't there with you as well, you can go off and you can design and you can do the UX in isolation. And I think we, we tend to have problems when obviously they come together because there is obviously going to be a conflict along the way. Um, I notice it more in agencies. Uh, client side, not so much with a kind of more rounded kind of team um, when obviously you're kind of working closer together. But um, I, I generally find, you know, the kind of the, the more you speak up and the more you're closer to who you're working with, it's it's much less of a problem because you're more likely to ask, "What do you think? Mm-hmm. Have you got an idea?" And often I find when I've worked with designers, it's great because it's it's great to get another opinion to bounce ideas off. Yeah. The worst thing you can do is sit down and you know kind of block out the world and work on something because it's going to be very biased towards your own vision and it's going to be really really hard at, at a certain point to actually collaborate because someone's going to have an opinion and you're not going to really like it because yeah. it's going to be different. Because you guys worked really closely um, on, on, on that project, right? Mm. And what I found interesting is so I, the, the way I saw this was that me as a business analyst and the other BAs were maybe a little bit the input into you, Tariq, in terms of like this is what the clients want in terms of functionality. And then, Isabel, I think you had a bit more input maybe, one could say, from the marketing team there where they were like, this is our brand, this is our style guide. Um, well, okay, you, you, you should have had the input. Um, I'll cut that out. Um, <laughs> And then downstream, I think, so this is maybe interesting. So I know that, Tarek, you worked quite closely with some of the developers in terms of feasibility and functionality, and Isabel, you worked quite closely with some of the front-end developers. Can we quickly touch on this, about like, how do you work with these guys on a day-to-day basis? Because there are different opinions about, like, handing over specs, handing over style guides, reviewing them afterwards, or working with them, pairing with them like side by side especially well, well yeah and, and maybe just expand on that you know what do you do on a day-to-day basis you know what what does your day-to-day look like how do you interact with people what do you think good looks like sure on a, on a day-to-day it kind of really varies i work very closely with the the bas they, they tend to be my kind of point of contact generally um if there's kind of questions i'll go through them but obviously we have kickoffs we kind of before each piece of functionality is kind of kicked off we we have a session we talk to the developers, we walk through the prototype, we explain it, we get questions, we get feedback, and there's still an opportunity at that point to kind of, if there's anything glaringly obviously wrong or kind of there's something that just doesn't make sense, 
that's a great time to get feedback. So quite often I've got feedback at that stage and gone back and changed the. You work quite closely on a daily basis with the clients, with the product owners as well. Exactly, exactly. So kind of we listen to what the initial requirements were, and we work with the BA, and we'd come up with a concept to kind of have a rough construct of like, is this what this experience looks like for a certain kind of complex transaction or whatever that model was, and then we'd get initial sign off for that. And then the BA would use that as a tool and the developers would obviously feed in and that could obviously change and add additional kind of features. And this actually would be a good point because I think there is a little bit of iterative work going on between... Yeah, there's quite so a BA bit. comes up maybe initially with the product on high-level requirements, mm. but then to articulate them, illustrate them and flush them out, you come in, you're like, this is what the solution could look like. Yeah. And then we come back in, we're like, okay, that's the solution. This is how we articulate the stories for the development I team. I think so. It, it got to a certain point where it was we had a rough enough understanding. So often at that point, maybe with Isabel, we could say, this is roughly like the design, the experience. Mm. And at that point, Isabel could look at it and put her kind of feedback in, especially around some of the interactions. If they, there's some things in terms of the positioning of the, the elements on the page, you'd feed in. Another thing that can be really good at the stage, of course, is user testing, if that's possible on Absolutely. a project. Because, um, you know, it's, it's really very much about you put something forward and then you're, you're refining it and you're making it better and better. And sometimes, you know, working closely in your team, you lose sight of the sort of bigger picture and you lose sight of what the clients or the customers will actually see or feel or how they might want to interact in the end. And that's where user testing can come in really handy because it highlights where interactions maybe go wrong, where there are misunderstandings, and then you can sort of reiterate Yeah, that. I'd agree with that. That's the critical thing. Yeah, so you know, we did user testing. I also worked in a government project where we did user testing, and we went to the lab every other week, and we mm. had you know, six mm -hmm. people in. I think, I think there's an interesting thing about user testing. One of my sort of gripes about it, and I'd like to get your guys' take on this, is that you bring in a sample of maybe six or eight people, and then suddenly you're trying to draw conclusions off of, you know, two or three people reacted this way, and that's, you know, maybe 30% of all the people, but it's also just two people, and then suddenly you might be changing your product because of just two people's experience. So you have user testing on, on one side where you, have, you bring people into a lab and you observe them and, and draw conclusions, which is, is valid, and we could talk about that. And then the other side, you might have more uh, quantitative where you have an A-B test where, where you run you know, two versions simultaneously. In production uh, line. In production yes, line, yes, and yeah. then you put a portion of the traffic through to one, mm. one variant, the A variant or ABC, and then you, you see how they compare who, who makes it through the journey uh, more often. What is your take on this user, you know, user testing versus the, the quantitative type yeah. thing and also drawing conclusions off of a, yeah. a small sample size, basically? Sure. I think you have to be very careful with the kind of qualitative side if you're only kind of picking a small audience. I've kind of found, especially kind of in governments, it kind of really depends. We, we, we tended to kind of go with a, a general kind of assumption, we would build maybe an experience based off kind of initial kind of user research. So we'd find out a lot of needs and requirements from the user before we actually put a prototype in front of them. Um, so it was more a case of when we did it and we looked at it, it's more, is this, does this thing actually work? Can people actually get through it? Does it make sense? Just as a basic usability thing. In terms of if someone said they don't like the, the colour pink or they, they don't like the button over there, you take that with a pinch of salt. Did it stop them from completing the 
whatever they were yeah. trying to do? Is it impacting? It's more around maybe context around the copy and, and do they understand actually what the proposition is? That's more of a thing you want to really understand. Does it make sense? Visual things you kind of ignore, which is sometimes where you go prototyping in a lower fidelity. Sometimes it's easy to get those that information out rather than a, a finished product. Uh, but with the kind of um, the quantitative, um, that, that's quite different. I've tended to do that more with the existing websites, kind of um, yeah. re- reviewing kind of like the experience and and using something like Loop Eleven and, and setting tasks and getting people to click through and see how long people take to complete tasks on an existing website and measuring that in large volumes. It's quite interesting. Uh, also as well, like A-B testing I've done on certain websites, especially with a product where there's obviously something generally around a buy button or something, a kind of a high-impact feature which needs to be tested. And, uh, and there's a lot of opinions there. So I, I did one at a property website where we had a button in various different positions and it would look fairly trivial and fairly minor in certain colours, certain things, but... It kind of helped give, like, I guess, um, we kind of notice a high level of conversion with certain positions and stuff. So I think when you get to that kind of like uh, a finished website where it's all about refining and improving, I think that's where A-B testing is really useful. I would say with user research, I would completely agree with what Tarek said and also what Todd said earlier. Um, but also I think it's all about observing people more than sort of doing what they say they want. It's about observing them as they interact and that can shed light on a lot of different things that they might even not pick up, but you can see and then that can inform your decisions. But all of that, I would say, needs an element of interpretation. Don't just take it like that, six people did that, so we have to change things now like that. Because also, you know, what you give them is likely something that is, at least to some extent, out of context. It's just a small part of a bigger picture and you know that bigger picture and they don't. So it needs some form of interpretation always. But it, it still has, definitely has its uses, I think, because yeah. you, can, you can gain a lot from observation. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think the biggest thing is bias. I think whenever you design something and whenever you design something, there's definitely a lot of you in there and a lot of ownership in there. And it's good to obviously, you take it out to someone who isn't involved in the project, who's never seen it before, and you'll get a very honest, childlike opinion sometimes of, yeah. of what they think. And often it's quite different to your, or your idea of what your product is and how it should work, because you you kind of you get into this thing as a UX designer, basically building it for yourself sometimes, which is which is tricky. And I think uh, taking it in front of a user kind of really kind of like shakes that away and, and brings things back to why you're building it in the first place and, and understand the broader needs. Right. So, so one thing we want to do in these podcasts is get really really practical examples of how you get into this, what skills you need, and stuff. So. Let's talk about how, how how would somebody get into being a designer or, or a UX person? Like, what things should they study? What sort of background should they have? What sort of skills should they have? Well, I mean, when I started to get into the business, it was very early days. Uh, you know, websites just started to become very popular. And I, I remember quite distinctly that when I started designing you were able to design something that was better than anything else on the internet, which is like absolutely unbelievable these days, of course. So I studied electronic media, which was a very diverse course, and it gave me a lot of options to explore different things, and I just chose to move in the direction of digital design, which at the time was 
really exciting and very new and had a lot of opportunity. I'm sure that now there are digital design courses that are specifically targeted. Of course, you could do a graphic design degree, but then, you know, the, the degree, like in many, many jobs, is really only a, a, a basic first step. Uh, everything comes through practice. So get yourself out there as quickly as possible and look at what you like. And, you know, I, I sometimes say to my junior designers, try and copy what you like, what you think works really well, because through that copying, particularly in the early days, we build up skills, we build up our technique, um, we refine our technique, we get quicker in how we work, and um, we learn a lot. So uh, that can be a way, and just you know, do as many projects for yourself as you can, explore as many styles as you can. Uh, you're not an artist, uh, you're someone who's expected to adapt to different needs, to different styles, it could be an illustrative style one day, it could be a more sort of corporate style or photographic style or whatever it may be and you need to be able to some extent, you know of course you can always get specialists in but to some extent you need to have a fair breadth of uh, abilities. So yeah, just practice. Did, did you have like an art background at all or how did you get your eye for colors and design? Did you have a background in that? Uh, no, not beyond sort of just being interested in art and doing drawings myself, but not in any sort of formal way, so very informally. Um, I think it's just something that I was interested in and I explored. And you can actually train your skills. It's not, you know, it, it's not something that necessarily just falls into place and you have that talent and you're this amazing creative genius. It's something that can be honed and practiced. And for a lot of people, this is how it needs to be. You know, practice a lot like you would in any other job. I think sometimes, particularly with visual design, with creative jobs, there is an understanding that, you know, it, it's just your genius that comes out. And that's not necessarily at all the case. That's a really interesting one because um, I find that a lot of designers, when they're young, um, they feel like they're artists and they're, as you say, a lot of geniuses, so that's what they want to be. Um, whereas I think, especially in the early years, design is, is, is a craft more than an art. Mm -hmm. As in, there are very clear rules for typography, for colors, what works, what doesn't. And you can get very, very good design by just following those rules. I mean, we had a boss together, Isabel and I, when we were right after, after uni, who said to me one day, you better steal something than do it badly yourself. And I think that is very true in the sense that copying something might lead to much better results than coming up with this crazy idea you have, which may be totally missing the point. I think this is one thing, I think the other thing which I think I find always amazing when I look at good designers is that they, they can solve the same requirement in five different styles, mm. right? It's the same website and one is, as I said, photographic, one is illustrative and one is other. And then, you know, you just see what works best in those cases, what the client likes best, what the users like best. And I think that's a major skill to be able to swap kind of from one style to the next to the next and not only design the thing you like or that's closest to your heart. I think that's a, a really big skill for a designer to, to be that flexible, I think. And then, of course, also be very, I think, very organized. Sometimes we have the impression that designers can be like these super creative people who are like, you know, uh, they, they don't need to conform to rules, they don't need to be organized. And I think the good designers I worked with, they are very organized, they are very kind of, you know, they have file structures, naming conventions, right? It's just those tiny hygiene factors which make a big difference as well. Um, Tarek, before we come to you, uh, maybe a quick thing about Isabel. How important is tooling, like knowing Photoshop, knowing Illustrator, knowing Sketch? Is that something that's super important or not? Or how, how, you know, on the, on, the, on the scale of things, what would you say? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely it's important. Uh, I think the industry has changed a lot in that respect. I remember when I started out it was certainly Photoshop and then to an extent and for certain things Illustrator that were the tools and everyone would use them and Photoshop is obviously a complete beast of a piece of software and it, it takes some skill just to learn that and to be able to use it to its best effect and I still find now for the things that Photoshop is still relevant when it comes to, you know, uh, if you have a website that uses a lot of photography, you're very likely to want to manipulate that photography. So my sort of early learned skills of Photoshop come in very handy there. And I don't know whether younger designers still sort of develop them because Sketch, for example, is a really different proposition and it's an amazing tool and I would completely highly recommend it. And it, it has some super clear advantages over Photoshop. It's a lot more lightweight and slick and, and easy to use, but it also has limitations. So tools are important. To know the tools well is also important. And then, of course, there are other tools that you would use that help you to interface with the developers in terms of your handovers, etc. So you need some sort of tool that allows you to show them and to also show the client some sort of prototype of what you're doing from a visual perspective. You're talking Envision or exactly, something like that. Exactly, Marvel, yes. something like yeah. that. That's important as well to sort of just stay up to date with what's out there and how things change. And those tools are becoming more powerful and and it starts to all sort of prototyping is, um, generally is becoming more powerful from the purely visual perspective and it changes reasonably fast so that's just something to also okay. stay abreast of. Yeah. So Tarek, what, what sort of skills do you think a, a UXer needs and, and what tools do you use? Uh, in terms of skills, it's an interesting one. Uh, visual design's been around a lot longer than UX. UX kind of appeared, I don't know, maybe 10, 11 years ago. Mm. About out of nowhere, really. And a lot of us who are in UX now started off in very, very different roles. Uh, I, was, I was kind of a, a designer stroke developer. I've met other ones who've been BAs who've moved over to it. Um, it really varies. Industrial and designers, I've seen I've quite seen, a number. Yeah. Psychologists. Yeah, everyone. Yeah. Everyone has an interest yeah. in the user, I guess. Yeah. Interest in the experience. and You can get degrees in it now. Again, you probably do a degree and you probably start off in a very junior position and, and, and work your way up. So it, it kind of varies, really. So it's something people can move across to if there's the opportunity to do that within a, within a company, I think as a researcher or as a kind of a customer experience there's various different ways of kind of getting into it really it really depends because there's different areas of ux you have your researching and you have your design and you have your customer experience and it's fragmenting all the time and it's getting more and more mature so in terms of in terms of the skills i would say being very user-centered and being an advocate for the user as i mentioned before and uh, really wanting to join up the dots between the business and the user and creating a kind of really good experience and really caring about that. Uh, often, if you can get user testing in there as well, that's uh, definitely a bonus. <laughs> um, in terms of kind of tooling, um, it really varies from some people like to go very low fidelity, paper prototyping initially, just to get concepting all the way up to using Sketch as well, which is also used by UX designers for kind of quick, clickable kind of prototypes. Mm, which makes collaboration very easy. Absolutely. <laughs> you can get something in front of the user very quickly. And I think that if you're just trying to, if you've got an assumption you want to validate with a user, I think it's a very quick and easy way of doing it with some designs. Uh, you can go into kind of HTML, CSS like they do in government. So you create very realistic prototypes. You can 
use other tools like ActShare, which is kind of a bit more bulkier, but it's more powerful with interactions. Uh, I think we should start wrapping it up. Is there anything, Isabel, that you think somebody should know about being a designer or should or shouldn't do if they want to be a designer? Or anything, any final thoughts? Really? Uh, well, I mean, just coming back to, I mean, don't don't assume you're an artist. I think is a, is a really good one for anyone to start out. Keep innovating at the same time. Keep staying on top of trends and keep collaborating. Don't work as a sort of, this is me and my personal project. Talk to other people, talk to them as early on as possible. Get them on your side. Particularly, I find also with developers, um, you know, the earlier I can go to them and say, how do you want me to hand this over to you? The more I can see a successful conversion from my design to what they then create and develop. So, you know, communication, collaboration, I think is key. Yeah, very similar. I'd say, obviously, care about what you do. Put, put like a, a lot of love and attention in what you do but also be pragmatic and humble at the same time when you actually kind of go to present your work or work with others in a way and be collaborative I think that's the key thing in a way nobody wants to work with a rock star it's quite easy to have your opinions or to alienate people very quickly yeah. especially if you feel you know they just don't get it so I think it's all about working with people around you and your, your seniors in a way to kind of get them on board and bring them along this journey as a collaborative piece. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. you. That's it for today's episode. Have a look at our show notes with related information and details on how to get in touch at thebarnup.com. We are listener-driven, so please do send us your questions, comments, and ideas for new episodes. We're both practitioners and are happy to discuss interesting opportunities from consulting to coaching to getting involved in actual projects. For inquiries, please visit burnupmedia.com. This podcast is produced by Burnup Media Limited under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 license, which means you can share it as long as you give credit, but you cannot change it or make money of it. Until next time, thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day.